Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Good evening. So like I was saying before, today we are discussing something incredibly exciting. You know, for newcomers and long-time tantrikas, both will enjoy, I think, this discourse that we get from Abhinava Gupta regarding the nine types of Shakti Patas. And we'll explain a little bit as to what we mean by the term Shakti Pata, because it is a tantric term. It's a very unique doctrine that comes from the tradition of Shaivism, most particularly in the tradition of Shaiva Tantra. Um, but it's a notion that occurs in every culture around the world. So every religion has some notion of this conversion moment when someone awakens to the higher life or starts to sense that there must be more to life than just money, than just pleasure, than just power. Like the moment when spirituality becomes the central focus of your life. And you'll be surprised to find that there are nine degrees to which this awakening can happen in a person's life. And why are we having this discussion? Because as you know, we are, I mean, this class is principally an inquiry into the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. So together we have all um, endeavored to explore and understand this principal practice manual of the Trika Krama lineage of Tantra. There's a lot of Sanskrit words there, but essentially this is a very important text for anybody interested in the practice of Tantra. Um, but it's also a very interesting text just from a point of view of comparative religion, because it's a very interesting spiritual phenomenon. You know, just in recorded history, there are several instances that I think are particularly noteworthy on a simply like anthropological and cultural level to say nothing of a spiritual level. You know, this text is very interesting historically, uh, literarily, because it is a series of techniques, 112 techniques in all for spontaneously awakening into your essence nature as pure awareness. And to, and to properly understand the text, as we said a couple lectures ago, you have to understand first and foremost, Abhinava Gupta's systematization of Tantra. You know, that will give us a kind of flashlight with which to walk around the sometimes very dark cave that is the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. A lot of rocks to stub your toe on and stumble upon. And this text is not given to beginners. In fact, much of what is in this text is called a secret teaching. I know after we say that, everyone will go to Amazon and get the text. The best way to make sure people read a text they're not supposed to read is to tell them they're not supposed to read that very same text. This is secret teaching, not meant for more. And then that's when they all go. <laughs> you know how we say, Ashtavakra, Avaduta, don't start there. You know, start with Vedanta, Sara. That's Those are the most popular non-dual texts. But like we said, you know, what happens is a person who is perhaps not ready for this teaching goes out and gets the book. And largely it's a waste of time because they'll flip through and they'll be like, oh, that was cute. It's like just a bunch of nice sayings. Okay, sure. doesn't really do what it's supposed to do. So in exploring the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, you'll recall that our primary project here is to explain the four types of categories in tantric practice that we get from Abhinava Gupta. And I'll explain a bit as to who Abhinava Gupta is to contextualize this particular class. Um, now, Abhinava Gupta gives us four categories of practice. Anupaya, Shambhava Upaya, Shaktupaya and Anavaupaya. And when you know these four categories, you can understand which category a certain practice belongs to. And by knowing that, you'll know what the practice is for, how to do it, and more importantly, who it is for. You know, so really this, this scheme 
of the four types of tantric practice gives you a very helpful, and in my opinion, um, you can't do it without it. You know, it gives you a very helpful roadmap in understanding the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, an essential roadmap. So that's our, our primary project. So in today's class, we're going to discuss Anava Upaya. We've already discussed Shambhava Upaya. We've talked about Shaktupaya. Today, we're going to talk about Anava Upaya. And to talk about Anava Upaya, I actually need to talk about Anupaya. So I want to do Anupaya and Anava Upaya, right, in the same class, meaning I want to talk about the highest, subtlest form of practice and the grossest, most accessible form of practice in one in the same breath, because they can only be understood in contrast with one another. It's a pretty Shaiva project already. Okay, so let's get started. Um, the first thing I want to start off with is, and this I think is the most exciting thing about non-dual traditions, not just non-dual traditions from South Asia, but any kind of non-dual spiritual tradition, oh, Vedanta and even Advaita Shaiva and Shakta Advaita philosophies, any kind of non-dual tradition, the central feature, and to me, this is the most exciting thing, is that right now, right here, you can be free. If you could but have one flash of insight, you would be free. Because your freedom is not something you attain after a set of spiritual practices. Your freedom is a fact that needs to be recognized. It's already true. It was true yesterday. It is true now. And it will be true tomorrow. You are already free. You're only pretending to suffer. And insofar as you don't know that you're free, you will act out your presupposed bondage. The Ashtavakra Gita says it in this stunning verse. You know, the verse is just, if you think you're free, you are free. If you think you're bound, you're bound. This would almost sound new agey and like self-help affirm affirmation-y if, if not for the depth that you get in the rest of the text. So what is the text trying to do? It's trying to point out a fact that is true now. And if you see it, it's like what we, we called once a trick image. You know, there's that movie Mall Rats, I think. And there's this recurring motif in that movie. It's this 90s movie about kids in the mall. And there's like, I know Claire has seen it. There's like this image of a sailboat, but it's all like pixelated. You know, it's a trick image. And there's a character who throughout the movie, he spends the whole movie standing in front of this image because he just can't see it. And as the movie wears on, he gets increasingly frustrated and desperate to see it. And characters will walk by and they just glance at it and lapsidaisically say, oh, look, a sailboat, which only adds to this man's aggravation, right? Because he can't see it, but everybody looks at it, oh, a sailboat, and, right? And this trick image, the thing about it is once you see it, generally you can't unsee it. You know, once you see the sailboat, you're like, okay, now it's just a sailboat, you know? So it's like that. When you see this thing, meaning the view it's called, Samyak drishti, it's called in a, a Buddhism. When you see the view, then that's it. That's all it takes actually to see the view. And in one flash of insight, if you could see the, the sailboat, you would be free. Why? Because your freedom is already a fact. And actually we'll give some philosophical justification as to why that's true beyond just wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. It's actually true. And we'll see in a bit philosophically why that must be the case. So that's the central feature in non-duality. If you're bound, it's only because you want to be. I know it sounds a little victim blamey, right? But that's really the way the tradition goes. If, if you're not free, it's only because you don't yet want to be free. It's a startling kind of philosophical point. 
that the only reason you are not all Jivan Muktas, the only reason we haven't walked out of central prison is because we, we are attached to the prison cell. Like we, we don't feel like we don't deserve to be free or we feel like the only way to be free is to do a set of practices or to win the favor of some God or to have a set of experiences. Insofar as you think your freedom is on the other, other side of practice, experience, worthiness, whatever, that will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And Shaivism offers a kind of, I guess, poetic reason for why that would be the case. The play of Shakti. You know, insofar as you want to play the game of being a bound soul, you will necessarily, con- necessarily then concoct such stories as this. Oh, I'll only be free if I, if I have this vision. Or I'll only be free if I do this much practice. Or I'll only be free if I'm a Kachatriya or a Brahmin, or I'll only be free if I was a man, or I'll only be free if in the next life, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If these stories are there, it's because Shakti intends to keep the game going for what? For fun. That's kind of the tantric approach. Like the only reason Shakti incarnated as a Nish is to play. And the first game she enjoys playing is Nish the pleasure seeker, Nish the power seeker, Nish the fame seeker. And those games cause Nish a lot of suffering, but for her, it's fun. You know, so insofar as Nish doesn't want to be free, it's because Shakti, who is expressing herself through Nish, still desires worldly enjoyment to keep the game going, to keep up her Maya for no other reason than for fun. So if you are not yet liberated, it's because on some level, you're still enjoying the play. And that's good. That's why this world is here. This mansion of mirth with all of its you know, traps and pitfalls and addictive behaviors and conditioned responses, all of it appears for no other reason than for art, than for theater, than for play. And insofar as you're still chasing pleasure, power, money, that's really just because Kali wants to play that game, not through you. And, and really the moment Kali decides not to play that game, yeah, God is a angsty, dramatic theater kid, it seems. The moment, the, 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 the singular moment that Kali decides to stop playing that game is the moment you either A, become a spiritual seeker or B, circumvent that whole process of spiritual seeking and go straight to liberation. And Abhinava Gupta maps out the nine types of Shakti Patas, nine types of awakening that can happen in different degrees of intensity. That's kind of like, um, it's like a, it's like a board game, you know, like how, what you roll determines like where you will land. I don't know if you played Snake and Arrows. Snakes and Arrows is like an ancient Indian game, very tantric game. In America, I think it's called Shoots and Ladders or something. They've defanged it. They've made it very kiddie, shoots and ladders. But in India, it's like 64 squares and it's all very mystical. And I, I think you can even pick up a copy on Amazon. I think Harish Johari has this thing called Yoga of Snakes and Arrows or something. And he's got a little book describing the game and the game. And this lecture brought to you by, uh, this is my plug of the day. So, um, but yeah, that game, it's like that. Like what type of Shakti path you have in the spectrum of nine different types of Shakti path will determine where you land in terms of the game of Shakti. Uh, a samsarin, an individual stuck in the world, a spiritual seeker frustrated because they're not just suffering the world. They're also suffering, you know, the desire to be liberated, which is sometimes worse than just being, you know, drunk on beer in a sports bar, arguing over which is a better team, Manchester United or Tottenham. Like in some sense, even if that's suffering, it's not as bad as what spiritual people go through. (laughs) And then, you know, there's liberation, which is the ability to just be in this world in, 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 in a truly meaningful and lastingly satisfying way. So what type of Shaktipata you get determines where you land on the spectrum. And that's what this class is going to be about because we need to understand in depth the theory of Shaktipat in order to understand Abhinava Gupta's Anupaya category. And once you understand that, then you will see the relevance of Anava Upaya. If you don't understand Shaktipat 
or anupaya, then it'd be very dangerous. Your anava upaya will actually hinder, not help your spirituality. That's why in the Ashtavakra it actually says you are bound only by your habit of meditation, which sounds extraordinary, extraordinarily radical. It sounds like meditation is an obstacle to spiritual life. And, and you know, if you tell this to anyone who's at the beginning of their spiritual life, they will use it as an excuse to not meditate. Yet another way that Shakti keeps us in Maya, all these like delusional self-aggrandizing, oh, I'm already free type philosophies. They're called direct path teachers and they do way more harm in today's YouTube marketplace of ideas than, than good because they invite people to be lazy about spiritual life. But on the other hand, what they're saying is true. You are already free. The question is, do we authentically know that or not? Okay, so let's start the lecture here with this idea that in any non-dual tradition, your freedom is already the case and all it takes is one flash of insight. But, and here's the, the, the fine print, here's the disclaimer, this flash of insight cannot be a mere intellectual ascent to a system of thinking. It has to be living wisdom, meaning this insight must be so deep that it doesn't just change your mind, it colors your responses to life. It changes your behaviors. Insofar as this hasn't happened, then it's stuck on the, on the level of intellectual insight. I mean, to me, even that is, is progress. To even be able to understand Vedanta or Shakta Advaita or Advaita Shaiva philosophies, even that, to me, is a big deal. You know, not a lot of people can, can understand the subtlety and the nuance of what is about to be expressed in this class or in any other lecture or in any book about this, this topic. You know, to even understand it, that's, that's nice. You know, it's progress. It shows a lot, a lot of, of purification to be even able to interact with these ideas as subtle as they are. And, you know, but then to go from that to an actual lived experience of those ideas, that's actually what we're talking about when we call it jnana. So that's the first term that we need here, jnana. Jnana means knowledge, but it means a kind of Gnostic knowledge. So the first point I want to make is this, no action can give you jnana. That's the most important point in non-duality. No action, no set of rituals, no practices, and no visions or experiences can give you jnana. Very important point to understand. This can change the whole trajectory of a person's spirituality and orientation to spiritual life for the worse or for the best. You know, so it's a very dangerous thing to actually say. Because if someone is unprepared and they hear this teaching, they will get the wrong idea that they don't need rituals, practices, meditations. They cannot benefit from any visions or spiritual experiences. And therefore, they will denigrate religion and its rites and, and its rituals and, and have this self-delusion that they're already liberated. When in fact, life very harshly points out their lack of liberation when they feel contraction around their money and their health and their loved ones, etc. So this is a very dangerous teaching because it can be misunderstood in that way. So when we launch into this teaching, you must always watch for this tendency that we all have to use this teaching to justify our already existing, pre-existing reluctance for practice, for discipline, for hard work. You know, If that's happening, we probably haven't understood the teaching. Or like we said in a previous class, if this teaching causes us to feel like we need to make some radical change in our life, like move to the Himalayas, then we've probably misunderstood the teaching. And the teaching is this, here is why Karma, meaning action, ritual, practice. Here's why karma cannot give you liberation. And actually, the reason depends on our definition of liberation. The liberation, moksha, 
according to the Buddha, according to Shankara, according to all the non-dual Shaiva masters, liberation is recognition of your true nature. Liberation is an insight, Vipassana it's called in Buddhism, an insight into the reality of things. That's it. That's all liberation is. You know, can you imagine? Like it, it, it's made up to be this like whole thing that, you know, you have to go through these nine heavens and meet all these different gods and say to Brahma, I've gone even beyond you. And like, it's made up to be this like super big thing, but no, no, no. It's just literally in all these scriptures, I can give you so many scriptural sightings. It's just this understanding, very simple understanding. It's the understanding that you are not the mind, nor are you the body. You never were, never will be. You always were, always will be. And even now are, formless awareness that exists in all beings and that in which all beings exist. That's it. That's the one insight that all religions are pointing to each in their own poetical and allegorical ways. The thing about Vedanta and the thing about Buddhism is it doesn't really need to resort to a lot of poetry and allegory. It tends to be very direct, logical, reasonable, and precise. So that's why, you know, Vedanta, especially in the Mandukya Karika, you know, Mandukya Upanishad can be very like cutting and incisive. And when you understand it, you then can apply it to any other spiritual tradition and Islam, Christianity, uh, Judaism, all of it snaps into focus and you realize every religion is right. And they're all talking about this essential thing. You might call it Chitti, awareness. You might call it Sakshi, witness, or you might take up a Christian notion of soul. Um, this idea of pristine mind in Buddhism is exactly the same as purified nafs in, in Islam, the idea of, of, of soul, you know. Um, soul in Christianity, soul in Islam, spirit, any of these words, they mean that which is non-physical nor mental. It's beyond body, it's beyond mind, beyond psychology, beyond physicality. And it is what you are, essentially. It's birthless, deathless, changeless. It and, and non-duality, the claim in non-duality is that it alone exists. And either in Vedanta, you would say everything is an appearance within it, or in Tantra, you would say everything is an expression of it without being different from it. You know, so like in any of these, these philosophies, the central insight remains. I am not the body. I am not the mind. I am the formless awareness, the spirit, pure soul in which the body, mind, and world come and go. And if I know that, if I have this flash of insight, that alone constitutes liberation. So if I know this, if I actually have the living wisdom that I am not this body or this particular person, that I am in fact something far more that includes every person and everything, if I actually know that, the work is done. That's it. That, and if, I, if I can live in that abiding wisdom from that point on, I'm chilling like a villain. You know? Actually, I wouldn't be chilling like a villain because no instinct for immorality would ever arise in a state of perfect oneness with every being. So. I'm not chilling like a villain. I'm chilling like a saint, right? And I, I will act that way. That's the important thing. I have to act that way because if I truly know something, I will act naturally, very naturally in accordance with what I know. This is a point that many modern Brahma Gyanis don't understand. It's not enough to simply know it. You don't really know it unless your actions are colored by it. So notice, karma won't give you jnana, this insight, but this jnana tends to color all your karmas, tends to at least, because you see, if I told you the road up ahead was blocked and you were driving down that road, if you knew the road was blocked, if you truly were convinced that the road was blocked, you would change course, no? It would be foolishness to keep driving down the same road that you now know is blocked. But if I saw that upon telling you the road was blocked and you continue down that same road, what does that show me? Shows me that you don't really know it. You're saying that you know it. And even if you're saying it, you don't really believe it, meaning you don't really know it. You're not fully convicted that the road ahead is blocked. And so 
Like a fool, we drive down the same damn road only to meet with obstacle after obstacle. But if you knew, then you would try a different road. So the important thing here is that what liberation is, is defined in most non-dual traditions, Advaita, Shaiva, Vedanta, whatever, is defined as gnosis or knowledge. The word jnana is different from vidya. Or you might even like have these ideas of uh, aparavidya and paravidya or aparaveda, paravidya, this idea of like lower knowledge and higher knowledge. So lower knowledge, I guess you could say, is anything that you just know merely on an intellectual level, which is not bad. It's still wonderful. Knowledge is still good. But this knowledge, this jnana, belongs to a slightly different category of knowledge that goes beyond mere intellectual comprehension. Now, this is the the, the point, like the, the particularly important point. Now that we know that, that the definition of liberation is knowledge, then we know that the opposite of liberation is bondage, right? If liberation is knowledge and the opposite of liberation is bondage, then the opposite of knowledge is ignorance. You see how we define samsara in relation to its opposite, which is nirvana, or you could say uh, moksha, whatever you want to call liberation. If liberation is knowledge, and we just made that claim that liberation is the insight into the way things are, into reality, into your essential nature. If that is what liberation is, then the opposite must be ignorance. Agyana, not knowing who you really are. So insofar as you don't know you are the soul, you must act as a body and mind. That's the law. If I don't know the road is blocked up ahead, even though people have told me in allegorical and poetical terms, I will keep going down the same road. I will keep looking for power, for money, and for pleasure. You know, so that, that's just a given because what else do I know? That's why in the Yoga Sutra, it says there, you know, iti, no, so tara drashtu svarupe vastanam, right? So when you have yoga, then you will abide in your true nature. Yoga is chitta vritti nirodaha. Yoga is the complete cessation of all the fluctuations of the mind, meaning deep meditation, meaning samadhi. Then in that samadhi, that nirvikalpa samadhi, where you're wholly unconscious of the body, wholly unconscious of the mind, essentially lucid deep sleep, maybe, you know, in that moment, ah, you know what you really are. Tara drashtu svarupe vastanam. Vastanam, you know, I, I abide, I abide in my Svarupa, my own essential nature. And my Svarupa wasn't gained through yoga. It was revealed through yoga. Very important distinction. I was always that Svarupa. It's my very own nature. It's just that my yoga practice revealed to me something that was occluded by what? By my misidentification with the objects of my perception. You know, so the very next line in the Yoga Sutra, after it says, yoga grants me the perception and abiding realization of my true nature at other times. At other times, I assume that I am the body and mind. That's, that's what yoga is telling me. So the definition of liberation is knowledge. The opposite of liberation is bondage, samsara, moksha, samsara. And if liberation is jnana, then the opposite of jnana is agyana. That's the first word we need today, agyana, meaning non-knowledge or non-gnosis. And the consequences of non-gnosis are very, very dire. Basically suffering on all levels, suffering of the body, old age, sickness, death, suffering of the mind, blame, disrepute, etc., etc. And Buddhism, very serious religion. If you get a new house, they say, ah, your suffering has began, begun because now you have to suffer the loss of that house when it erodes and you have to pay all sorts of taxes on it. And so Buddhism doesn't even begin until you realize that your happiness is just setting you up for sadness. <laughs> It's very, it's, it, I think Vivekananda said beautifully, uh, these traditions began in extreme pessimism and end with tremendous life-affirming positivity. 
you have to go through a stage of kind of cold, like, okay, you know, this is nice, but for how long? If you enjoy praise, you must suffer blame. So a person who's beginning spiritual life, right, already senses the blame inherent in praise, already can taste the bitterness that is a seed in every sweetness. That's a very serious thing. And and I'm not sure many people even want to take that red pill, right? So anyway, um, now, insofar as I don't have jnana, if I have agyana, then I must live out my life as a body and mind. Okay, so if the definition of liberation is jnana, the opposite, so if the definition of, sorry, the definition of bondage is agyana, ignorance, let's just call it ignorance. What is the opposite of ignorance? This is the most important thing. The opposite of ignorance is not action. You see, that's the key philosophical insight. Action can never remove bondage because action is not opposed to bondage. Only knowledge can remove ignorance for only knowledge is the opposite of ignorance. So to give the metaphor, let's say you walk into a dark room. Bondage is the dark room. Enlightenment is the light, literally enlightenment. You know, light is opposed to darkness. Light is the opposite of darkness. So if I go into a room and I shine a light, the darkness is no longer there. What's there is light. But if I go into that same room and instead of a flashlight, I bring in a hand drum and I go, tuck, 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 I bang the hand drum. That's, I'm not going to like a bat echolocate. You know, I'm not going to suddenly see the room through sound. Why not? Because sound is not the opposite of darkness. Light is. So only light removes darkness. No amount of sound, no matter how loud or obnoxious, is going to remove that darkness of the room. I need light to combat darkness. In the same way, I need knowledge to combat ignorance, not action. And that to me is is thrilling. It's thrilling that all you need for total emancipation is an idea, an insight, just a thought. And that thought, if you get it, can at any moment for anyone at any time for any reason whatsoever flower into living wisdom that permanently affects the way you perceive others, the way you carry out your activities, the way you experience your life, you know, how thrilling is that? So exciting. And it's very hopeful. It means that if they realized it, if those masters that came before the rishis through time immemorial, if they realized it, we can too. It's not a big deal. It's no big deal. You know, as, as Buddhists like to say, enlightenment is nothing special. It's just, oh, but it's infinitely meaningful. It's actually the most special thing there is. It's the most worthwhile thing there is. But that doesn't make it some exotic, like shrouded in mist in the peaks of the Himalayas kind of thing. It's something that anybody anywhere can have if they were but ready for that flash of insight. So we'll say a few more words about this, but I want to introduce two more ideas. So we've got Agyana. Agyana is the first obstacle to jnana. In fact, agyana is the main obstacle. It's the main cause of, of bondage. It's the definition of bondage, agyana, the lack of insight into your true essential nature. So let's say you're told, as you have been time and time again, you've, we've all been told the truth through the Upanishads, you know, through uh, lectures with great swamis, and, 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 and we've, we've been told, we know, we know the teaching. And we'll review it in a little bit, but you all know the teaching, but let's say I get the teaching, but it doesn't do what we just said it should do. It doesn't actually, if I get the teaching, 
say the agyana remains after the lecture i go back to carrying out life as a body and mind so what's going on there the next word we have to understand is actually vikshepa by the way i'm taking these from like the vedanta tradition so this is from panchadashi panchadashi and and kind of like vidyaranya swami's kind of kind of stuff um i think this is from jivan mukta viveka one of vidyaranya swami's texts but anyway i think it's good to talk about vidyaranya swami because he's a southern indian vedantist who also wrote texts on tantra and you know tantra moved south so in vidyaranya's time there was a lot of tantra in southern india that's where our family got it from we're southern indian so this kind of tantra in the south influenced and colored vidyaranya's writings a lot so he even has like shri vidya texts you know so i think it's nice to talk about vidyaranya because it it shows us the parallels and the intersections between two traditions that pandits i don't know seem to be very interested in keeping apart but are in actuality as sri ramakrishna demonstrates in his life one in the same tradition no uh, what we call zogjen buddhism kashmiri shaivism uh, very similar and you could even say kashmiri shaivism or advaita shaiva is the same as vedanta in in many ways okay so vidyaranya swami jivan mukta viveka panchadashi like all these texts you get this idea and the the idea is that agyana is the main cause for bondage and if i get gyana if i get the truth and i still don't experience liberation it's because i'm too distracted that's literally a vikshepa in sanskrit means distracted i am literally too distracted in the mind to stay with that insight after i've received it the moment i receive the insight my mind runs away to the next thing and i i lose it i i i forget it really so vikshepa is the distracted mind obscuring an insight that was already received already transmitted that's typically what happens we get the teaching but we forget the teaching or we lose touch with the vibe or texture of the teaching because our mind is way too distracted it, the, the 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 mind is scattered like so many rays scattered over various different desires and aversions and and interests and obligations and agendas so the mind is a very dispersed fractured thing you know it's scattered over so many things and in so far as that's true i'm not able to stay with the teaching long enough for it to become a lived reality So I might have received it I might have had the flash of insight but then because the mind was too distracted to hold on to that insight one pointedly and single mindedly I went back I relapsed you see that's typically what happens to us we get the teaching we understand it for a time and then we, like next thing we know we wake up and we're like in an Amsterdam brothel like covered in vomit like oh my god where am I how did this happen <laughs> you know like the idea of relapsing vikshepa yes literally means distraction a vikshepa is a distraction so vikshepa means i didn't receive the teaching because i was too distracted for it as simple as that you know i was simply too scattered in my mind to single pointedly assimilate and digest the teaching such that it became a living reality i was just unable to be with it long enough for it to be real for me friends i think this is a stunning insight that all it takes is one insight and that the only reason that insight hasn't flowered into full liberation simply because i'm just too distracted to stay with that insight after i've had it stunning right i mean it's so thrilling to know that you are but one insight away and just a period of digestion and assimilation away from permanently shifting your experience of this world you know from being this isolated lonely individual in a world of things that i like and things that i don't like fearing death old age sickness and the loss of loved ones just one insight i'm one insight away from being in all of this as if it's entertainment 
a rising and falling of so many states of mind and body, just effortlessly gliding through each scene of my life as if I was visiting a picture museum, you know, oh, Picasso, ah, Rembrandt, hmm, Hieronymus Bosch, that one looks a bit sus. And then like that, just walking and walking, you know, <laughs> I'm one inside away from that. And that's why in the Quran, it says thrillingly, oh, God is closer to you than your jugular vein. Oh my God. Hair must stand on end when you read that in the Quran. God is closer to you than your jugular vein. Or in Luke, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Oh my God, that's that's closer than like cup of coffee on my table. I'm I'm closer to it than the cup of coffee on my table. And that is within my reach. Why not liberation? You see, that's the kind of non-dual insight that it's not this thing that I have to wait for for lifetime after lifetime. Yeah, God is our very own. It's closer to me than my goddamn cup of coffee. If I can reach across the table to get that, sometimes, you know, when I'm in bed and the the alarm goes off and it's time to meditate, I think if Frodo and Sam can make it to Mordor, I can make it to the meditation mat in my living room. You know, and it's it's not even like that. It's like, if I can drink this cup of coffee, it's, it's, it's even closer than that. And even simpler. Even coffee takes some golfing. You know, John Cage, he puts that microphone to his throat and drinks carrot juice. Yes, liberation is easier than even drinking carrot juice. My what cup of coffee? My, yeah, right. <laughs> mm, liberation. No, see, it's easier than that. That's a thrilling thing. I'm one inside away. But the reason I can't have it is because when I had it, I gave it up. I surrendered the diamond because I was fascinated with the marble. I'm just too distracted. Like, like a child, I just like throw away the diamond and I want the, these pieces of marble. So notice in Buddhism, the approach is meditation first. Shamatha mind. Develop that kind of calm, focused mind. I love how Westerfer on Monday, we were talking meditation and he was using the phrase concentration practice. That's wonderful. You know, you focus on the breath. Why? Practicing, you know, so that you don't have Vikshepa. So you think of this, Jnana removes Ajnana. What removes Vikshepa? Meditation. That's it. Meditation removes Vikshepa. Okay, simple enough, right? But what if I actually try to do it? I'm going to find out that I can't even do that. I can't even meditate. There's too many desires. Vikshepa is so strong that I can't meditate. And not only that, I just can't seem to find the time for it. I can't find the time for my concentration practice. Why? Now, the third word that we need to know is chitta mala. Oh, sorry. Chitta mala. Chitta mala. So these three things, right? Agyana, which is the main obstacle. Vikshepa and chitta mala. So if I have jnana, I'm free. The reason I don't have jnana is because I have agyana. I don't have knowledge. But if I get jnana and it doesn't get digested or assimilated, the reason is because I'm just too distracted. I can't stay with it. Big shaper. And if I try to meditate and I can't, the reason is because chitta mala, too many impurities in the mind. That's why the yoga sutra, when it lists the eight steps of yoga, begins with yama and niyama, ethical principles for interpersonal life and kind of self-helpy principles for intrapersonal life because it's not until I have a clear conscience that I can profit from a meditation practice. If I live immorally, chances are I'm too busy running from the authorities to like sit on my mat and meditate. I'm always going to be looking over my shoulder for the FBI or awaiting that call from the IRS because, you know, I don't know, in an example, I'm evading taxes in some you know case that somebody might be doing that then they might be in trouble, right? <laughs> the IRS might call them. Or if they murdered someone and they feel guilty about it, even if they're now in Mexico and they've gotten away with it, oh, going way down south, way down to Mexico away, where I can be free, right? Hey, Joe. Hey, Joe. 
Where are you going with that gun in my hand? I'm going to shoot my old lady. Got to mess around with another man. So, like, maybe Joe got free, right? Ain't no hangman going to put his noose around me, right? Maybe Joe got free. But even if Joe made it to Mexico, having killed his wife, even if, if he made it to Mexico, chances are he's not sipping margaritas with Jimi Hendrix on the beach. Chances are, well, maybe he's like, I don't know. I know um, there's a text on Eichmann that one of the, uh, who was it? On French philosopher, Simone Beauvoir, right? Simone Beauvoir wrote this beautiful ethical kind of exploration of post-World War II Nazis who, who seem not to be guilty. I don't know. I mean, what their intrapersonal, intrapersonal experience was, who can say, you know, but, but in Yoga Sutra, at least, it seems to be the case that if you don't have a clear conscience, the conscience, the presupposition is it will interrupt your meditation practice. That's just the insight of our rishis in ancient India, that you have to have an ethical life in order to even begin spirituality in any meaningful way. You know, a lot of atheists think the reason we have religion is for morality. They're dismayed to find that morality is actually the line to get into the line, to get on the ride in Disneyland called religion. Religion is not for morality. Morality must be there before religion can even begin. So you have to have the yamas and niyamas, you know? Then after that, this is important. Insofar as you crave sense pleasures, you'll never really be able to meditate. Because if you sit there on the mat, you will be meditating on those. It's like Swami Muktananda said so beautifully. Apparently, I read in his biography, someone came to him and said, I can't meditate. And Swami Muktananda asked, well, what did you think about for that whole hour? I saw you sitting there. What were you doing? And this man apparently says, well, I thought about my business and I thought about my wife and I thought about my life back home. Apparently he was from America or Europe or something. Thought about my business back home. And Muktananda Babaji's response was beautiful. He said, what do you mean you didn't have a good meditation? It sounded like you have a great meditation. You remained unwaveringly focused on your business and your home life. Because that's the idea. It's like, we're all really good at meditating. Insofar as I'm attached to something, that's the thing I'll be thinking about. So if I sit on my mat, the reason I can't concentrate is because I have so many desires. You know, actually, if someone was obsessively interested in wealth, they actually have a good shot at spiritual life because their single-minded devotion to, to wealth might actually bring their mind into a single point. That person is actually like a dry kindling and, and one match will set them on fire. They already have concentrated mind. All they need now is the, uh, the jnana. It's very exciting to see people who are like single-pointedly attached to something, right? But that's not the case. Most worldlings are not single-mindedly devoted to one ideal. Their mind is scattered over so many different things. You know, like the, I want this, I want that, I want this. And I, it's never ending. Swami Ashokananda said, you know, like if you look at the life of the average man, you'll say he wakes up, he has breakfast, he goes to work. Then Ashokanandaji says in that same lecture, it was called, Why is the Mind Restless? I think some time ago. He said, you zoom in, you'll notice something interesting. Even in breakfast, it's a drama. The toast is not toasted enough. The eggs are a bit off. Something's wrong with the coffee. He's angry with his wife. What did you put in the coffee? He goes on the bus. He sits next to a person who is a bore. He gets to work. If he's the boss, he's angry at the people he bosses. If he's the employee, he's upset at his miserable lot working for the man. Like if you zoom in, you'll see that every little snapshot of a person's life is filled with a background tension, as Eckhart Tolle calls it, full of like, this isn't quite right. And I need it to be this other way like that, you know? So notice our aversion is plentiful and our cravings are plentiful. So insofar, I mean, it's very rare to find a worldling who has single pointedness. And insofar as I want sensual objects, then I'm, I'm going to be distracted. I'm going to have Vikshepa. So this is called Chitta Mala. Mala means impurity. Chitta means mind. So Chitta Mala means impurity of the mind. It says in the Gita, 
the beginning of like it's almost like in a yoda like way right because you know yoda kind of yoga you know that's just, uh george what was the name george lucas was close friends with joseph campbell who was initiated by swami nikilananda a disciple of the holy mother so all these ideas come through but in in you know it's like hate no um, fear leads to anger and anger leads to hate hate leads to suffering you get exactly that in chapter 2 of the bhagavad gita attachment to sense pleasure leads leads to desire desire leads to anger anger leads to confusion confusion leads to loss of memory meaning the loss of discernment and that leads to the ultimate ruin of the person the degeneration of the mind bhagavad gita chapter 2 you know arjuna asks he says why is the mind distracted he asks why is there vikshepa and shri krishna ji answers says because you're attached to sense object objects you know but wait this is the most important thing who forgive us father we know not what we do how can anybody know better than to be attached to sense object it's it's all that we got right it's all that's been good in my life orgasms and chocolate cake i mean at what point do i say oh i'm going to live for something other than orgasms and chocolate cake at what point do i decide to be finished with sense pleasure ah uh, now we can come into our central theme of today's talk which is shaktipat before we even start talking about tantra look at the opening line of the um avaduta gita which is a vedantic non dual text right the opening line in the avaduta gita is you know this right what's the opening ishvara anugraha deva pum samadvaita vasana mahadvaya paritranat vipranam upajayate opening line it says right there ishvara anugraha deva it is by god's grace alone anugraha means grace ishvara means lord eva alone it is by god's grace alone pumsam advaita vasana vasana means inclination or desire advaita means non duality so it is only by god's grace that the desire for this stuff even emerges where where does it emerge vipranam upajayate it emerges upajayate spontaneously in the hearts of who the wise and what does it do uh saves them paritrana it saves them from maha bhaya great fear it mahad bhaya means all forms of fear and anxiety so this knowledge saves them from great fear but it was only through the grace of god that a person should even have an interest in this knowledge at all in any capacity whatsoever so like we said i think maybe 3 or 4 lectures ago the thing about shaktipata is it's incredibly mysterious and nobody can understand why it happens and why it happens to some people and not others why some people can live their whole life content to just drink beer and and argue politics whereas other people from a very young age have already seen through all of that are interested in something deeper and are starting to read the gita at age like 10 like what How is it that a person at a young age knows that sense objects aren't ultimately fulfilling and yet someone could be 85 spent a whole career in academia by all accounts and purposes is an intellectually gifted person and they are still a slave to sense objects what's going on there and so in shaivism it's very important to like kind of have this theory you know of 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 shaktipat shaktipat is the theory that accounts for this very mysterious phenomenon in spiritual life Yeah right if the soil is not good right if you th- you can throw the seeds but if it lands on cement now that's the idea what accounts for the soil being good and not good and that's the that's the question that abhinava gupta takes up in chapter 13 of the tantra loka okay so now we come into our tantra so this is the preface for the beginning of the sh- like no, notice the project here right shaivism is actually going to try to offer a philosophical account as to why this inscrutable and mysterious process happens 
I think that's kind of exciting. Most traditions are content to say, ah, grace of God, what to do? Maktub, it's written. Well, what am I going to do? Okay, you know? No, you see, Shaivism is trying to go further and say, no, 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 let, let's actually figure this out. Let's sit down and philosophize and figure out what it takes to get, get God's grace. <laughs> I can't just be sitting around. Like, let me see what I can do to meet the fella halfway, right? Black eyed peas, meet me halfway. Where I'm going to stay for you or something like that. Just do it, do it. Go halfway, but how? How do I do that? That's what Shaivism is about to ask. And Abhinava Gupta gives a spectrum of nine different types of Shaktipatas. Okay. Before we do that, who is Abhinava Gupta? Like, why is this important at all? I've been meaning to do this actually, like for some time, even before we started talking about the four Upayas. Um, I think it's important really to, to kind of contextualize why we're talking about the four Upayas and what does it have to do with the Vignana Bhairava? So as you know, Tantra has, is already well underway by the time. Yeah, who is Abhinava Gupta? Is Shiva. And who is Shiva? Me, my own essence nature. <laughs> so finish, lecture ended. <laughs> what is it? Like all non-duality lectures start and finish with Brahma Satyam Jagat Mitya. Awareness alone is real. The world is an appearance. <laughs> Shaivism has a few more things to say, but ultimately that's what is conveyed. Okay, so we know Tantra is already well underway. It could have been a pre-Vedic civilization. So some scholars will say it's an immemorial, time immemorial kind of tradition, but really just like in a, scholarly way, we say 500 years of Tantra had gone by at this point when Abhinava Gupta comes into existence. So 500 years of Tantra, meaning all sorts of Tantric schools, the Shaiva Agamas, the Rudra Agamas, the Bhairava Agamas, you know this, the tripartite hierarchical revelation of Shiva. Trika, we talked about Trika at length in the last two lectures. The Trika school of Tantra had reached its full form, its final evolution whatever Charizard, Charizard, whatever, you know, his final evolution. And um, it, it has now a non-dual esoteric variant called Kaula Trika. So Kaula, it's like its own lineage, but Kaula influences the Trika. In, in, in some accounts, it's the daughter of the founder of the Trika. Triambaka, who founded the Trika, his daughter founded the Kaula, which makes it, in some scholars' opinion, the first female-founded lineage of spirituality. Just kind of cool, right? Um, very progressive. The idea is like she was the main guru there. So Tirambaka's daughter finds, finds, founds Kaula, Kaula Trika. So that's like, oh, bye, dear Casey. Good night to you. So that's well underway, right? We have this Kaula Trika school, well underway. Then the Krama school had been developed. It's well underway. Gyanitranata had gotten his initiation in the uh, Ghat, the cemetery, that's our cremation ground in, in, in uh, Udiana. And by this point, he had already come to Kashmir. And in Kashmir, he initiated, again, a female disciple, Gyanitranatha, who is the founder of the Krama lineage, the, what will turn into Kali worship, the Kali Kula. It was called the family of Kalis. This is what today is known as Shaktism, right? So the founder of Shaktism, Gyanitranatha, he comes to Kashmir, which was a place of great learning at the time. So even Shankara went there, you know? So all these people love Kashmir. So he came to Kashmir and already he had initiated Keiravati or Kedevi, Kadevi, the goddess K. It's one of her names. And Keiravati, because she used to have this, this bangle, this gold bangle. That was kind of her, her, her pseudonym. Okay, so Keiravati, Keiravati initiates this guy, uh, Viranatha or Vamana Natha, you know, and then Vamana Natha initiates Bhuti Raja. So you're getting this lineage. And so Krama, the worship of Kali, which is an esoteric kind of tantra, very closely guarded lineage-based tradition, that's fully fledged. Or at least it's it's in its phase of being fully fledged. Trika is there, Kaula Trika, Krama. Okay, it's the backdrop that Tantra is already so varied and interesting. Now, when you get to about the, the year 900 CE, which is fairly modern, 
there suddenly appears just before 900 C there appears like this flourishing of um, Shaiva masters in Kashmir. The first one is of course Vasugupta who was writing around 825 to 875 common era. So Vasugupta, we talked about him actually in a previous lecture, the guy who was under the mountain, Mount Mahadeva, meditating on Shiva and then Shiva appears and dictates to him the, he dictates, what is it? The Shiva dictates the um, Shiva Sutra, 77 aphorisms of Shiva, which kind of starts this, like what we call Kashmiri Shaivism or the Shaiva exegesis of the 10th century. So Vasugupta kind of gets it started. Why? Because Shiva came and revealed to him basically the Mandukya Upanishad to save non-duality, like we spoke about in a previous lecture. Okay, so Vasugupta appears, he teaches non-duality, and uh, I was of half a mind to do that teaching today, having talked big about like insight-based teaching, but I don't think I will because you all know it already anyway. Save it for Q&A. So, you know, he gets the teaching. He gets the insight. I am not the waker. I'm not the dreamer. I'm not the deep sleeper. I'm the one common to all three in which they come and go. You've heard this. Okay, so there we go. We've got this insight. He's spontaneously awakened. Then he initiates someone called Kalata. This is 850 to like 850 common era. So Vasugupta's primary disciple is Kalata. And Kalata is very important because, and he's important for our discussion of Shaktipata because he um, founded the, the Spanda lineage of Tantra. You know, so span, he wrote Spanda Karka, which means like doctrine or stanzas on. Spanda, what is that? Spanda means vibration. Yeah, exactly. Claire likes this. Right? This, this is a central kind of poetic, I guess you could say, device in Tantra literature, but it's not just poetic allegory. It comes from the direct experiential realization of the, these masters. So what Vasugupta and Kalata experienced was non-duality, but not in this like pristine consciousness, Buddhistic, Vedantic kind of way. So you read the Vedantist and the Buddhistic, barring some poems from some particularly eccentric tantric masters, if you read like the classical stuff, it can make consciousness sound like this very kind of non-dynamic, passive, static thing. So oh, I'm awareness. Cool. The world is an illusion. Awareness doesn't do anything. doesn't move. All it does is witness. Okay. Hooray for me, I guess. All right. I'm awareness. The party starts. I don't even get a party hat because it's non-dual. It's it, You get this kind of idea that it's like, there's not a lot of life to it. I mean, of course, the experience of it is different, but the way it sounds in the scripture, I mean, kind of dry, you know? Brahman is kind of, it seems like, and, and Ramakrishna got so angry when some people were calling God dry, right? God, God isn't dry, but the scriptures can sometimes, when you text torture it, makes God a dry topic, you know? Because Brahman is a choiceless witness of everything. So to talk about that, sometimes who can talk about it? It's beyond any kind of classification or categorization. It, it defines, yeah, right? Make him sit with your bhakti. And then Ramakrishna got so angry about that because he's like, no, God is not dry. What a crazy thing to say. That's like, oh, I keep my horses in the cow shed. You know, it's like someone obviously who doesn't know God making up that statement because God is full of juice. You know? But anyway, that seems to be expressed by Vasugupta and Kalata that God is juicy. Because it's not like, oh, you have to make God juicy with your bhakti. No, awareness is this pulsing, throbbing, like full of life and creative kind of matrix of the generatrix that's always kind of spawning worlds and dissolving worlds. And at any given time, there's an expansion, unmesha, which is a very important word for today's class, unmesha. And following an umesha, again, this is very important, there's nimesha. Anytime you have an unmesha, an expansion, there must be a nimesha. So you're getting this kind of duality, this kind of language of opposites, but 
there's an underlying unity because it's all the unmesha and nimesha of one thing, the spanda. You hear this exact kind of pedagogy in Swami Vivekananda when he talks about things like love and fear. He's saying love and fear are not two things. They're both different degrees or different frequencies of one thing. You know, so fear is contracted love. Love is expanded love. That's it. Isn't that beautiful? Vivekananda, you know, is using these, these Kalata Vasugupta terms. Uh, really, when you start studying Shaivism and then you read the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, you're like, oh my God, gold. You know, because like almost word for word, these insights are given expression. Tad bhumika sarva darshanam sitayaha. 10th century sutra, sarva, all, darshanam, all schools of philosophy. Tad bhumika are expressions, sitayaha, all propositions of all schools of philosophy are various expressions of that one tad, of that awareness. And it can be attained. That awareness can be attained through any of these. Oh, Ramakrishna, right? It's so exciting to see this continuity. Anyway, from Vasugupta and Kalata, this is right before the like 10th century explosion of Kashmir exegetical writings. You get these two guys, Vasugupta and Kalata, who create Spanda, Spanda lineage tantra. Okay, so we got that. And obviously that was very influential for our Abhinava Gupta because that was a flourishing tradition there in Kashmir. Anyway, now, we have another guy in 900 CE, Somananda. Somananda is kind of like the granddaddy of, of this Kashmir lineage because he writes this text called the Shiva Drishti or the vision of Shiva. Or really the text is like what it means to be an enlightened master in Shaivism. How do you see like Shiva? How do you allow yourself to be the glasses through which Shiva looks like that? And from this, we get these ideas of the Panchakriyas, the five, no, Panchashakti, five powers. You know, Jnana Shakti, Icha Shakti, right? Like that. So you get that from Somananda. Okay. Somananda has a very, very, very super, cannot stress this more, important disciple, Utpaladeva. You know, so Utpaladeva is probably the most important master in this lineage because he writes the Ishvara Pratyabhikya Karaka, which is a work that is stunning in its philosophical depth. Utpaladeva in Kashmir takes on Dharma Kirti in southern India, who is the leading Buddhist scholar at the time. And Ishvara Pratyabhikya Karika offers a stunning response to the Buddhist mechanism of cause and effect. You know, Dharma Kirti gives this impression that the world is just a clock. It's just cause and effect. Every cause and effect. In fact, everything is like kind of locked in this structure. And Utpaladeva says, no, 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 no. Causes can arise without any effects. Effects can spontaneously occur without causes because awareness is ever free. It's svatantriya. It's free to do anything without any cause whatsoever because that's what it means to be free, to be causeless. And he does it through non-duality. He explains, you know, in this very non-duality, he thrashes Dharmakirti, which no one had ever done before. Everyone loses to Dharmakirti. Dharmakirti. And it actually influenced a lot of Buddhist scholars too in, in, in Tibet and all that. Nobody takes on Dharmakirti. You know, he's like the bad boy of Indian philosophy at the time. And by the way, in Indian philosophy, you don't want to lose to anybody because it was a tradition back then that it was, you have to acknowledge who you lost to. If ever you write a text after formally losing a debate with someone in, in Navadip or in Benares, you would have to say, I, who previously lost to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, I am now writing this text. <laughs> it's so metal. You don't want to take on anybody in case you lose. But Ishvara, this Utpala is offering a, a res response to, to the, the machine that was Buddhism at the time, literally. And he tears it apart by saying, no, it's not cause and effect. There are causeless effects and effectless causes. And he's doing it through non-duality. No need to get into the proofs here, but that is a remarkable philosophical work. And it takes on Buddhism. It takes on Vedanta. 
takes on a lot of different, it's philosophical in nature. But the reason Utpala is so cool, so groovy, is because he also writes Shiva Stotravali. So I'll put that text in the chat because Swami Lakshmanju has a nice translation of it. I love this text. I'm always quoting it in our, in our Friday evening Shaivism meditation classes. I'm reading from it almost all the time. I love this text because it's uh, Stotra means hymns. Vali means garland. So Shiva Sutra Vali means garland of hymns for Lord Shiva. I'm going to decorate you, my Lord, in, this, in these hymns. And, and they're all like eerily autobiographical. It was, it was in a time where there were no such things as hagiographies. This was like a, 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 such an intimate account of a person's struggle in spiritual life. And despite it being like poetical and devotional, it expresses like such devotional fervor, but at the same time, crazy rich non-duality which again is to me one of the principal innovations of Shaivism that we see in the Ramakrishna mission, the idea of non-duality, but with ecstatic devotion. You never get this everywhere else. If there's ecstatic devotion, it's dualistic, right? But now you get this idea of non-duality plus divine devote devotion, you know, and that's from Utpala Deva. Okay. Utpala Deva um, gives us Lakshmana Gupta. Lakshmana Gupta is Utpala Deva's disciple. We don't know very much about Lakshmana Gupta. There's just an autobiographical note. None of his texts have survived. And Lakshmana Gupta is the Pratyabhikya teacher of Abhinava Gupta. Because I guess you could say Utpala started a new school called Pratyabhikya, the recognition school. You know, because Ishvara Pratyabhikya Karaka means stanzas on recognizing Shiva, yourself as Shiva. It's a non-dual masterpiece. So Abhinava Gupta is initiated into this Pratyabhikya idea, this idea of recognizing yourself as God from Lakshmana Gupta. But Abhinava Gupta is interesting because he has 17 gurus. So somehow or other, he is the holder of 17 different lineages and three of them are particularly important. One is Pratyabhikya, which we just talked about. The other one, and remember I talked about Kaula Trika earlier, right? Uh, or I talked about Krama. Gyanetranatha, uh, Keuravati, Bhuti Raja, no, Keravati, then Vamana, I believe. I think Chakrabanu, and I think Bhuti Raja. But anyway, Bhuti Raja is one of the, in that lineage. Bhuti Raja initiates Abhinava Gupta into Krama, into Kali worship. And then on the other hand, this guy Shambhunatha, who we also don't know very much about outside of Abhinava Gupta's Mangala Charanas, Shambhunatha initiates him into Trika, Kaula Trika. So Kaula Trika comes, Krama comes, Pratyabhikya comes, and it gives us the most important tantric philosopher of all time, Abhinava Gupta, who initiates Maduraja, who takes his teaching down to Minachi in the South, and he initiates Kshema Raja, who writes one of the most well-cited texts of all time, the Pratyabhigya uh, Hridaya Sutra, which is his attempt to essentialize his teacher's teacher's text, the Ishvara Pratyabhigya Karika. Okay, so Kshema Raja, he translates the uh, Shiva Sutra, so Shema Raja's commentary and translation on the Shiva Sutra is authoritative. So you see how the Shiva Sutra starts the lineage and ends the lineage. It's like everyone's pooling together. This is Kashmir exegesis um, of Tantra. And it's from Abhinava Gupta that we get these four categories of spiritual practice. Now, he writes this masterwork called the Tantra Loka, meaning the light on Tantra. And in chapter one, two, three, four, and five, the whole work is finished. Five powers of Shiva, five chapters, done. The whole work is finished. Chapter one is bondage. He explains what bondage is. And basically, we just did that in the beginning of this class. He explains why people are bound, what happens when you're bound. He explains what it takes to overcome bondage. And then verse uh, chapter two is on Anupaya. And because we've already defined bondage as a lack of insight, it allows him to say in chapter two what that insight is. 
And the hope is if you are the 1% of people reading the book, you can literally put the book down at that point because the work is done. You can go ever free. I mean, of course, if you pretend that you're free, you'll soon come back to the book. The world will kick your butt back to the book. You know, so self-delusion is not possible because almost always the world will give you feedback that you're not enlightened, even though you think you are. <laughs> so chapter two supposedly finishes it for you if you are that one person who can receive that right away. You know, so chapter two is called the Anupaya chapter. It's a chapter on Anupaya. Uh, upaya, as we upaya, sorry, upaya means means or technique or method or way. An, as you know, is a negation. You put uh in front of something like jnana, uh, plus jnana, ajnana means no knowledge. Similarly, upaya, anupaya means no way. It's the wayless, wayless way. And, and by the way, we have this phenomena today on YouTube called direct path teachers. And this is essentially what they're trying to teach, but they don't have the juice for it. I mean, they have the intellectual insight, but not the shakti required to turn this into living wisdom in the one who hears it. So you see, this is a karma idea. And the idea is that the insight for it to become living must be spoken to you by one who is living it. And the degree to which that one person lives it is the degree to which you will hear it. Now, I think this is very easily to, easily demonstrable. If someone plays a Jimi Hendrix solo and they're an impersonator versus Jimi Hendrix playing the same solo, although it's the same note for note, one is Jimi and one is an impersonator. One solo moves you and the other doesn't. Why? Because Jimi's notes are coming from Jimi, from his lived experience. Whereas the impersonator, he knows the right notes. She knows how to play the guitar, but it's not coming from a living source. That's why there are stories of like people who've been studying Vedanta their whole life they know all of it. And all it took was one sadhu to tell them, meet me by the river at this time. And they say, Tattva Masi, and they're free. All they needed was someone who knew the truth to say to them exactly what they've been reading. Then they feel it. You know, this, yeah, this transmission is oftentimes wordless, but in Tantra, if it's wordless, you can be in trouble. And I'll explain why in just a moment. So it's usually in Anupaya, the idea is you get the teaching and it's, it's, a, it's a view expressed in words, but it takes you beyond all words. It's the ultimate Shuddha Vikalpa, as we've discussed in previous classes on Shaktupaya. So once you hear the teaching from someone who lives the teaching, it's words plus that wordless Shakti that frees you. Ultimately, it's the wordless Shakti that frees you. Right, so that's the important point, Westy. The words don't free you. Ultimately, it's what the words point to, which which is wordless, non-cognitive reality. That shakti ultimately frees you. Why are the words important, though? Now, just to close the class, we get into the nine categories of shakti path that can happen. So, shakti, like we just discussed and hinted at, is power. It's a transmission of power. In the Kaula Sutra, it says, "What is the guru? The guru is the unbroken transmission of shakti. The guru is the guru is shakti, actually." We say Guru Shiva. Shiva is not different from a Shakti. The Guru is not a fella. The fella is the receptacle for Shakti. Swami Sarvadevananda said to me, don't meditate on Gurus like they are a man. Then you will just become a man. Very beautiful, right? This idea that you'll just get the man's qualities. He actually said to us, very beautiful, uh, think of the Guru who was there during your Diksha, meaning when you got your initiation, which is something we'll talk about next week. When you got your initiation, that's the Guru. Basically, he's saying this, and the guru was that, that power that, that was conveyed in Diksha. And you need Diksha to practice Tantra. That's just the hard and fast of it. You need Diksha. 
It's just part of the tradition. And when you have a diksha, then you'll be like, oh, this is why I needed it. Because you'll feel that transmission of power, especially in these non-dual lineages, right? That's the guru, actually. The guru is the shakti. Anyway, so you get a teaching, you get the shakti, and shakti pata means the descent of power. But where did that power come from? The guru was a receptacle. It wasn't the cause. The power came from Shiva. So Shiva gives the grace to awaken to spiritual life. That's called Shakti Pata. And it can happen to anyone for any reason at any time. And there are nine types of Shakti Pata that Shiva gives according to um, Abhinava Gupta. Now, in order to explain this, he does it in chapter 13. So you get chapter one, uh, tells you about bondage and liberation. Chapter two gives you this Anupaya teaching and uh, some people might be free. And if you're not free, then you go to the Shambhava Upaya, Shaktupaya, Anava Upaya, which we discussed last week and we'll discuss next week. So anyway, now skip to chapter 13. Gives you a kind of theory of Shaktipat, which I said is the project we, we mean to take up now. So the theory of Shaktipat is as follows. Through a non-dual lens, it goes like this. God wants to play a game. Shiva emanates this world into being and then enters into it as every plant, every animal, every person, everything. Because he has a creative urge to experience himself in this way. So after he creates this world, he peoples it with all kinds of people, all different types of dispositions. And he fills the world with every sort of thing that can be entertaining and delightful, including things that cause pain and suffering. Because those things, apparently to Shiva, are delightful also. It's fun for him. You know, it's fun to experience all of these things. So when he emanates the world forth, he does it as Shakti. So it's Shiva using his Shakti that the world comes through. So the, the world is Shiva, but it's better to say the world is Shakti. Everything is, is the modification and expression of that being. So the being is now becoming. Becoming is not different from being. As Sri Ramakrishna said, the wiggling of the snake is not different from the snake itself. There's no difference between the snake and its wriggling motion. And, and in the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, which Ramakrishna quotes directly, um, there's no difference between the fire and its power to burn. That's a verse in here, actually. It's probably the first time that idea appears, that Shakti is to Shiva what heat is to a fire. Ramakrishna adds the part about the milk and whiteness. And the beauty, you know, someone once told me that it was very important that Sri Ramakrishna was illiterate because his very life proves the scripture. You know, that he can spontaneously say things that are exactly recorded in the scripture proves that these scriptures are the direct revelation of, of masters. And that's a beautiful kind of point about Sri Ramakrishna. Um, okay, anyway, now Shakti creates this whole world and through Shakti, Shiva becomes an Amal, a Tori, a Nish, a cat. You know, Shiva becomes all of these beings and plays these various games, but there are two types of games. I'm broadly speaking, so many, in, invariable, right? Like there's countless games that Shiva can play. You can be a stockbroker. You can be shooting up heroin in a back alley. You can be a drunkard, like beating her husband. You can be, I don't know, a gambler. You can be a saint. You can be so many things you can be. It's like a wonderful RPG game where anything is possible for you. You can create a business. You can create a war. You can start a genocide. You can start a charity program. Anything. You know, when Shiva expresses her infinite nature, naturally infinite possibilities. You know, one of these things first, which one? All, all exist. Every single thing is possible. Every activity. And they're all there for Shiva to play, right? Oh, <laughs> I don't know that song. You need to teach me. But all these things are there for him to play, right? Now, here's the thing. There are two types of games that Shiva plays. Both are equally fun. So from where we're standing, Shiva wants to play the game called Unmesha. 
This is important. Unmesha. We, we heard it earlier. The idea is expansion. So we want to become Shiva. We, the bound soul, want to become liberated and expand into our essential nature as the all-inclusive transpersonal awareness. So this is the game called spirituality. Japa, you know, recitation of mantra, um, meditation, dhyana, yoga, any kind of yoga. All of these are a game and their orientation is towards becoming Shiva again. In other words, becoming Shiva here is recognizing your being nature as Shiva. So this is called Unmesha, the trajectory into expansion. The opposite of this is called uh, Nimesha, contraction, the movement into embodied existence. So becoming a Sakala or a Pashu, a bound soul. Now, why is there a niche? This is such a key question. Why is there a niche? And it's a beautiful answer that we get in Tantra. Because you see in Vedanta, if you say, why is there a niche? Vedanta will smile and say, what niche? Never was, nor is there now, never will be. Do I need to tell you why the snake appeared? Snake is in your mind. Snake is an illusion, just rope. You know, there's no snake. The snake was not the creation of the rope. It's not the creative expression of the rope. It's an illusion. And actually, that's not even true. Vedanta doesn't even really believe that. That's just, it's Mayavada and Shunyavada and Buddhism are just tools. You, know, you have to throw them away also. Uh, Vedanta actually, you know, this is interesting. Vedanta actually doesn't offer a metaphysics. I know that's kind of stunning to hear, right? We, we, a lot of people think Vedanta is a metaphysics. It's not. It's a pedagogy. It doesn't actually offer a metaphysics. Neither does Buddhism. I'm talking here about Advaita, the lower forms. Ooh, whoops. The other form of Vedantas, right? The Vishisht Advaita and the, they are in, in the Ramakrishna mission, hierarchically revealed to be non-duality the highest. So they are lower forms, not untrue, but just corresponding to lower aspirants. You know, that's what we would say in Shaivistic non-duality. The highest du- revelation is Paramadvaya, non-duality supreme. But we make you know, different people digest different food. But we do call them lower aspirants. That's an important thing. There is a, a hierarchy here. Anyway, um, these other forms, maybe they offer some descriptive metaphysics, right? Like, oh, there is this God and creates this world or, oh, we're all parts of this God. But in Advaita Vedanta, in Shankara's Advaita Kevalam, or even more radically in Gaurapada's like Ajatavada, no metaphysic is offered. Stunning, right? I keep getting texts every day from people. I mean, not every day. It's an exaggeration, but just often. Yesterday, this boy was a young boy who had learned this stuff was like texting me, be like, but if this world is an illusion, well, what do I do? And he's like 18. I'm like, bro, the world is very real. It's all real. What makes you think it's an illusion? And he's like, but you said, Swamiji said, I'm like, bro, this is not a metaphysic. Advaita was never interested in telling you how it was. They were only interested in telling you how it wasn't. That's it. Advaita was just there to show you what's not true, not to make any kind of claim as to what is true. (laughs) That's the really crazy thing. So um, Tantra does though. Tantra does try to do an itti itti kind of affirmation. And so Tantra says this from their mystical experience. It says this. Ah, this snake, this world is the creating creative expression of Shiva. So why is there a niche? Because that's the game that Shiva wanted to play. He could have played any game, but he wanted to play the niche game. Isn't that beautiful? What is the greater sign of God's love for you than he literally became you? And he so loved you that he became you and forgot himself. As we often do, we lose ourselves in love. We become the thing that we love. So Shiva so loved a niche that the fella thought he was niche. Right, as Swami Chit Brahmananda says, this world, and this very tantric guy, this world, as Swami Chit Brahmananda, who's lecturing right now in the Vedanta Temple Hollywood. My wife is there, actually. 
which I think it's kind of <laughs> she's there <laughs> in this uh, right now uh, he's probably saying this like this is the love letter to me because Shiva manifests his world and came into it as an issue you know what this should make you feel like that everything you've done was fine and beautiful and Shiva wanted to do it whatever you think you did some bad stuff hey no you didn't do it Shiva did it maybe you were punished for it maybe you have to eat some karma for it but it's Shiva he wanted that you know it's a very beautiful idea that like you have made no mistakes in your life Everything is scripted. It was all Shiva playing. Everything you've ever done is Shiva's game. It's, it's all perfect. You came for that. You think of your worst, like the thing you most regret now. It was actually literally your life's purpose to do that. Your life could not be any other way. Shiva li- like literally wanted to experience what it was like to lie to your mother, to, I don't know, hit someone on the street. Like whatever regret you might have in your life, Shiva wanted that. There's nothing wrong, you know. And more importantly, whatever desires you've had, I don't know what kinky stuff you're into, but maybe you feel weird about it. I don't know what like greeds and gluttonies you've done in your life. And maybe you feel weird about it. Don't. It was all holy. It was all pure. It was all part of Shiva's game. He desired that. It wasn't an illusion. It was mirth. And if he didn't have that, he would need to keep incarnating to have that. So you performed the ultimate sacrifice for Shiva. You allowed him to play his game through you, which involved your kinks, your lusts, your greeds, your all that. It was all fun for him. And the fact that you're eating the karma for that is your like seva to him. You know, that's kind of the vibe that we get here. There's no accidents here. Shiva came to play. And most of the time in our life, that play was painful for us. You know? Okay, so that's the first idea that we are the Nimesha of Shiva. And given that we are the Nimesha of Shiva, don't you think that sooner or later, there's going to be a return journey? Don't you think he would have inbuilt that into Maya? It, it's him going into Maya, right? So don't you think that he would have set something up to come out? <laughs> it would be kind of ridiculous if he's like, I'm going to create a Maya. I've set up all the rules, but there's no off button. I'm just going to go in and suffer for time immemorial. I'm just going to go like, you know, get wrecked. Yeah, death. Yeah, you could say, but even then death doesn't free you. You just go through like get reincarnated. and Because it would be too... Probably, right? In the prototype version of the Matrix, Shiva came in, died once, became Shiva again. He was like, that game was too short. Let's create reincarnation. So now there's this never-ending process of the game just goes on and on and on. In some Puranas, the idea is Shiva is making love to Shakti forever. And all the other gods are jealous because he never stops having sex. He never comes, she never comes, and they're always on the edge of an orgasm. That's kind of the feeling of being in this world, being on the edge of an orgasm. And it's nice. You could say this whole thing is the prolonged teasing of Shiva and Shakti. It's just a, a romance between the two of them. It's your romance. And you here now are on the uh, Unmesha journey. Why did that happen though? The turning point, as one sadhu said, right? The fish turns at the edge of the aquarium, that pivot. The pivot that happens because it's part of the program, actually. You can only contract so much before that, that starts. And why does it start? For no other reason than because of Shiva's innate spontaneous freedom. Now, this is key. It didn't happen because you did something to deserve it. You know, that's very important. You didn't do anything. There was no amount of meditation that you needed to do before this happened. If you had meditated not, not at all, it can still happen. And it does. Like Ramana Maharshi, it just happened. Why? Just because that was what Shiva wanted to do. It was perfectly part of his Svatantriya Shakti. It was not caused. Because if you say it was caused, then you are more powerful than God which is heresy in Shaivism, right? The idea that you could cause God to give you the grace, oh, blasphemy. But Shiva himself gave you the grace. And, and that's why you now engage in spiritual life. 
So in the last 10 minutes, eight minutes, oh, I was hoping there was nine, one minute per degradation, eight minutes. Let's talk about the nine types that you can have. Shaktipats can happen anytime, right? And Abhinava Gupta in chapter 13 is trying to respond to the dualist because the dualists believe in Shaktipata too. And in fact, up till now in our classes together, I've been giving you the dualistic interpretation of Shaktipat. Notice when we talked about puja, right? Didn't I sell puja to you as something that could give you a Shaktipat? That's what I did, right? I told you if you do puja every day, sooner or later, you'll see Kali or sooner or later, you'll get non-dual truths. Basically, that's the dualistic idea, the more popular idea that if I just do puja every day, if I just do japa, if I just meditate, then I will have this truth, right? That's the karma idea, that karma somehow liberates me. Oh, I froze. Okay, back. <laughs> Karma somehow liberates me, right? That's the idea that I've been telling you so far. Now, Abhinava Gupta is saying is not like that. He responds to the dualist and he says this, the dualist make a claim. By doing japa and by meditation, I gain the shakti part. Shiva is saying, no, no, no. No teaching this stuff. <laughs> Let's see. I'm going to create a Maya so enmeshing. <laughs> okay, let me see if I can just get through this last eight minutes. I'm so close. Um, last five minutes. Okay, I'm just going to give it, see what comes through, and then we'll end the lecture. Okay, so see what comes through. If the dualist argues that it is only through japa and meditation that I got the Shaktipa, the non-dualist like Abhinava Gupta will just say, why did you do japa in the first place? Right? If japa got you shaktipat, it could only have been because of shaktipat that you did japa. So elegant. The simple non-dual response to all the dualists. Oh, I'm separate from God. No. If truly you chose to do japa, some inner urge. But here's the key. Where did the urge come from? There's no possible cause. This is the response to Buddhist and Vedantist. The idea that maya is cause and effect. No, no, no. God can enter his maya and disrupt that cause and effect at any time. You get this idea in Islam and Christianity. God's grace is atemporal, aspatial, can happen to anybody for any reason, right? So this thing, it's felt experience. Your parents could be worldlings and you could somehow be interested in spiritual life. And you might not know what triggered it. There's no, like sometimes in many cases, there's no real cause for it. And it caused you to seek out a guru. So it can be a cause, but it itself is not caused. Why a person becomes interested who knows? Why does the computer programmer have an interest for software programming if his parents were artists? I actually know one of my friends, one of the leading AI programmers, but his single mom is an artist and there were no computers or phones in his house. But from age like six, he was using the school computer and already writing public source codes that big companies were, were using. And when he's not coding, he's coding. His hobby is coding. He just loves it. But there's no reason why he loves it. It's just a samskara that seems to come out from nowhere, right? But there must have been like an initial samskara. The idea is that something overrode all the other possible samskaras. And that was this Ishvara Anugraha. Eva is the Ishvara Anugraha Eva. God's grace alone. Shaktipat comes. And that's the idea. Anybody anywhere can get a Shaktipat. Okay, and there are nine types of Shaktipat. The first one, the, the biggest Shaktipat you could get is instant exit from the game. It does happen. You could drop dead right away and instantly be liberated. This is not Jivan Mukta, right? It's, you're not embodied and still liberated. You're liberated and no longer embodied. It's like Bideha Mukti. Gone. Like that. Lightning strikes. Your body is gone. 
your mind is fizzled up and you go, you're, you're out. That's Shiva hitting eject. It does happen. Shiva's just like, eh, I'm pulling out of that one. Pull out method, gone. Amal drops down. Finish, liberated. You go poof. One friend was studying Buddhism here at UCLA and he was like, is it like this when you attain nirvana, you like disappear, like just fade out of the matrix? I laughed and laughed and laughed. But actually, it was not entirely incorrect. There are cases of people just dropping the body like a leaf, suddenly just going into samadhi, gone. So that's the first grade, the highest grade coffee without any sugar or milk. You know, just the pure espresso hit of Shaktipat can instantly liberate you just like that and the body will follow. That's the highest grade Shaktipat. The second grade is what I really want to talk about today. This idea that you can, this is what Westifer was hinting at earlier about the wordless transmission. You can get this transmission and it, it, it's wordless. So the second type is it's not from a guru. It's not from any scripture. It's not from any teaching. It just happens. As in the case of Ramana Maharshi, he just laid down and it just happened. We didn't die. In fact, he might have, right? He went to a mountain and just sat there in samadhi forever. If someone didn't feed him, he might have. So we kind of put him in the second category because he lived a lot of his life after that point from age 16 onwards as a liberated master. But notice, you know what happened with Ramana? Something, he had that insight and he just started going to school less. Isn't that interesting? He just started, started going to school less. He was no longer interested in his studies. He used to be a studious boy. He just start good South Indian boy, very studious. Stopped being interested in that. And he started like visiting a mountain and supposedly receiving instructions from the mountain. Now, there's this kind of Shakti path. Two things can happen. One, this is the second type, right? First type, you die. Second type of Shakti path, if you get it, either it's so strong, so it's almost the first one, it's so strong that it's completely integrated from the get-go. That's very rare, that you have this awakening and actually you live the rest of your days in an abiding realization. More likely, what's going to happen is, after this awakening, you're going to be super, super, super motivated to find a guru, to find a practice, to stabilize it. So if you have the Shakti path and it's wordless, believe me, you're going to look for words. You're going to look for words that echo back your experience and give you psychological models to integrate, actualize, and reify that experience. That's why wordless is not enough in this tradition. It can be, but very rarely is wordless enough. You get the wordless Shakti, then you actually see Guru, you seek scripture, you, you seek words. Because you've actually already experienced the truth of all those scriptures. But in order to justify, validate, and stabilize, then you go. Which category does Sri Ramakrishna belong to? Obviously, you can't say he's an avatar, so he's not like anybody else. But if you applied a tantric exegesis to it, you would say category two, right? Because he got his Shaktipat straight from Kali. Just through longing. In some sense, he's saying his longing caused it. Where does longing come from? Ah, you see, that's how the non-dualists will say. His longing came from Shakti. That longing of Shakti in him was consummated by Shakti coming. And then he sought out gurus. That's the key. It was only after he realized the fruit of sadhana that he became interested in sadhana. So it's almost always the case that if someone receives a strong wordless Shaktipat, they seek teachers, but they're very advanced disciples. Why? Because they've completed it. They just need to do it to, to, to reify the body and mind. So be careful. Your practice should increase if you've had this insight. If your practice doesn't increase, then you probably haven't had this insight. Or you maybe belong to that very rare 1%. Okay. So enough said there. That's category two. Um, hopefully, when you have the insight, you will also be called to stabilize it. Okay. Category three is where most people belong. You know, most people in Tantra at least belong. The idea is um, you get this instinct 
that there is something true in the scripture. Viveka, Shraddha, call it what you want. You just get this sense that there is a truth and it's out there and people have realized it. And in this life, I can too. And I'm going to seriously make spirituality my priority. Most people in category three become sadhus, sannyasins, because they don't feel like there's any possibility of doing anything other than spiritual life. So even if they're householders, their entire life and all the money that they make goes to spirituality. That's it. Like there's nothing else, literally nothing else that interests them but this. But they don't have it yet. They're not yet stabilizing the insight, but they are so sure of the insight. And not only that, they're so sure that they can have it that they doggedly pursue it. They look for gurus. They seek out initiation. They spend all of their time on this. Sound familiar? Uh, most of you are in this category of third level Shakti Pata. You, you really want it. And there's uh, one author said, there's no possibility of playing any other game in life. Right? There's no possibility of doing anything else with your life but spiritual life. But you don't know the truth yet. Even though you've heard it, you sense that it's not yet living wisdom for you. So you continue to come to lectures, you practice yoga asana, you do pranayama, you meditate, all of that. So most of us belong in this. But categories four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, I can summarize in one go. They are all summarized by increasing degrees of worldliness. And after category three, we're no longer talking about enlightenment in this life. Category four is enlightenment after death, what is often called karama mukti, where I don't quite attain it in this life, but I continue to practice post-death, maybe in some other loka where practice is a little more accessible to me. And then maybe I'll be either liberated in one of those lokas, or maybe I'll come back and try again. And maybe in my next life, I'll be a type three, but now I'm a type four. And, and as a type four, you know, I, I travel sometimes through Air Emirates from Malaysia and it's a Muslim country. So when I land in, a, when I go to America, they sort us all into categories of who is likely to be a terrorist. There's a lot of screening in these airports going through the Middle East. So I'm a 20 something year old man from an Islamic country. So I am a type four, I, or I have four S's on my ticket. And so I have to stand in a special line with like these really gruff, hardened, like, you know, like strong looking dudes. And I'm here frail, kind of like, you know, a little flower. And they always see me and laugh. And sometimes the women and the children get put in this like double S category. And they sometimes look at me and they're like, haha. Anyway, I'm a type four threat. So <laughs> three S's or four S's on my card. Or something. I don't know if they still do that. It's been a while since I flew Emirates. But anyway, um, yeah, this idea, if you're a type four, yeah, if you're a type four, then you're probably going to have to come back. Tantra says you'll come back. Either in some other realm, you'll achieve it or in another life. Why? Because you still want to enjoy shit. You know, you still want stuff in this world. You're still interested in, 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 in pleasure. And, and that's okay, actually. That's, as we said earlier, it's, it's part of how do you know a type one isn't a type four? Oh, like who dies? Because it's instantaneous. So once you get the Shakti part, the body drops away. You go into Samadhi instantly, you go away, right? The type four, unlike a type three, does other stuff that's not spiritual. They're interested in like other stuff. In other words, they're interested in worldly stuff, meaning they want pleasure, they want power, they want money, which is not bad. So the Tantra as Ram Kanta, one of the early scholars of Tantra, Ram Kanta says, a Tantra is what gives you yoga and boga. So Tantra is obviously not shy about using yoga to get boga. Use a mantra, get Shiva. I'm sorry, use a mantra, get Shiva. Or use a mantra, get Jiva stuff. Like get pleasure, get power. Get You can use mantras for that, no problem. There's no contradiction between boga and yoga. Why? Because it's all Shiva's game. Play it and use Shiva's methodologies to play it. You know, he give you tools called magic. <laughs> use it. Do puja to Lakshmi, make some money. Why do you want to 
bust your ass at Starbucks. Learn Lakshmi Puja for crying out loud. There are spiritual means to get things in this world. Shiva gave them to you. They're called tantras. You know, the boga is, is part of the domain of tantra. If it's just boga, then it's not a tantra. Ram Kanta says clearly, a tantra must want yoga too, but gradually. So four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, all of these are defined in terms of worldliness and tantra gives room for that. There's still shakti patas. There's still a desire for spirituality, but to the degree that the desire is not yet strong is the degree to which the person will still want experiences. And the degree to which they still want experiences is the degree to which they'll incur karma and have to keep coming back. If only to satisfy those experiences in next life and life. Yeah, that's it. So this is the theory of Shakti Patas and it describes where each of us land on the snakes and arrows game of spirituality. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Let's close here with our Shiva Mantra and do some uh, Q&As. Okay. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnam Udachyate Purnasya Purnam Adaya Purnam Evavashishyate Purnameva Vashishyate Ishvara Nugrahad Eva Pumsamadvaita Basana Mahadbaya Paritranat Vipranam Upajayate Om Shanti 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 Harihyong Tatsat Sri Ram Krishna Panamastu Lord, thou art indeed wholeness itself. From wholeness comes forth wholeness, and as an ocean is neither diminished nor aggrandized by the rising and falling of waves, so too are you, Shiva, neither aggrandized nor diminished nor changed in any way by thy infinite countless unmesha and nimesha expressions. And so, Lord, as this particular Nimesha expression, I pray to you, you who are the expanded version of me, grant me liberation even in this life that can come only through thy grace. May I recognize the truth in the statement, Natvam Deho, Nate Deho. I am not the body, the body is not mine. May I realize even now that Bokta Karta Navabhavan, I am not the doer, nor am I the enjoyer. May I be established always in the knowing of Chidruposi Sadashakshi, that I am of the form consciousness alone. And with this knowledge, may I always experience Nirapeksha Sukamchara, the ability to be without expectation or want, and Sukamchara, the ability to move about the world happily, as is my true nature anyway. This is my prayer. Lord, grant this to us, and may we always be thy devotees. Om, peace, peace, peace. May this be an offering to Sri Ramakrishna.